when I moved to Atlanta in 1997, technically every time I had sex, it was illegal. I mentioned that to a younger queer person that I knew and they were just baffled. They were like, what are you talking about? Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Until 1960, sodomy was illegal throughout the entire United States. This made oral sex and anal sex illegal for everyone and often criminalized any sexual behavior that occurred between unmarried persons. Those who violated these laws were potentially subject to decades in prison as punishment. While these laws technically applied to everyone, they were often only enforced when sodomy occurred between persons of the same sex. For a long time, these laws were a roadblock to gay rights. As long as those laws were in place, marriage equality and anti-discrimination policies were off the table. Sodomy laws have since been repealed in most states, and since 2003, they are no longer enforceable anywhere in the country. But does that mean that sodomy laws are gone for good? In the wake of the reversal of the Roe v. Wade ruling, one Supreme Court justice called to revisit the issue, and that has set off a lot of alarm bells. So today's show is going to be all about the past, present, and future of sodomy laws. We're going to discuss the history of these laws in the United States, including the 1986 Supreme Court case that initially upheld them and galvanized the gay rights movement. We're also going to discuss where things stand now and whether sodomy laws might potentially return to the U.S. at some point in the future. I am joined by writer and historian Martin Paget. He is the author of A Night at the Sweet Gumhead, which tells the story of Atlanta's gay revolution in the 1970s. He is also working on a new book titled The Many Passions of Michael Hardwick, which tells the story of what is arguably the most important gay rights case in history. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Get fit and stay firm with FirmTech. Their performance ring is designed to boost your sexual stamina and give you harder, longer-lasting erections, while also enhancing pleasure for both the wearer and their partner. Their tech ring has the added benefit of tracking your erectile health when synced with FirmTech's free mobile app, which monitors changes in erection duration, hardness, and more. Take control of your sexual health while increasing sexual performance and satisfaction at the same time. To learn more, check the show notes or visit myfirmtech.com and be sure to use my exclusive discount code, Justin20, to save 20% off your purchase. Again, that's myfirmtech.com. Become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist with the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers 20 certification options in areas including medical sexology, kink, neurodiversity, and LGBTQIA affirmative therapy. They also offer a PhD program in clinical sexology that can be completed in two years and meets all ASEC certification requirements. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to fit your schedule. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archive workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Hi, Marty, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. How are you? 
Doing well. Thank you so much for joining me. So you are working on a new book about Michael Hardwick, who was one of the key figures in an infamous 1986 Supreme Court case dealing with gay rights and the right to privacy. Hardwick was arrested in 1982 for violating sodomy laws in Georgia. He filed suit challenging the validity of the law, and his case wound up before the highest court in the country. So as a starting point, please tell us the brief story here of what happened and what the court ultimately decided in this case. Over July 4th weekend, which was a big party weekend in Atlanta, Michael was coming out of the cove where he was helping to install some sound equipment. They were just opening a new disco floor and they were very proud of it. He went outside and he normally wasn't a beer drinker, but he took a beer outside with him and saw a police car go by, so he threw it away immediately, according to multiple profiles he he did. A cop turned around and took him into his car and took a half hour to write him a ticket for public drinking, open container laws in Georgia. Then the cop went and did something unusual in making the arrest warrant right away to take to Michael's house. When he went to the house to serve the warrant, Michael wasn't there. Michael's roommate told him about it, so Michael thought he had more time to handle it, but he went down to municipal court anyway, paid the fine, thought it was handled. The police officer didn't know that the ticket had been paid, so he tried to serve a warrant for failure to appear. And when he did that on August the 3rd, the early morning hours, he came into the house and went to the back bedroom where Michael stayed and found him having sex with another man. So there are differing accounts between the officer and the people who were there, but generally they agree that there was a a short time elapsed until they could all figure out what was going on. And then they started bickering. And then the officer said, well, I'm taking you in for sodomy. And he was arrested. Someone posted bail for him almost right away when he was able to call out And uh, for the next 12 hours, he was kind of moved around the Fulton County Jail, up and down different floors, and jail officers made sure that the other other people who were jailed knew what he was in there for, and he felt threatened by it. Eventually, he got out and was nervous about it and wanted it just to go away, but then the ACLU attorneys that became involved in the case made a plea to him to take this as high as they could go, as far as they could go in the court system, because as far as they could tell, this was the perfect case. A police officer had come into his home, into his private space, and arrested him. From there, it took a long time to work its way through the court system, but various people have told me that there were a few people who made sure that the case was preserved in a way so that it would be ripe for the Supreme Court to take a look at eventually, if it made it that far. It went to a district court, which refused to hear it right away and said, there's a 1976 ruling by the Supreme Court, Doe versus the Commonwealth, Virginia, that says that there's no privacy right for homosexuals. When Michael's team appealed that to the appellate court, the 11th Circuit, they got the ruling they wanted. They were lucky to get a judge who had made several critical rulings during the civil rights era in favor of black civil rights protesters. And in that ruling, they said that uh, Georgia had not stated why they needed a law against sodomy and that they could either take it to trial or they could void his case. The attorney general for Georgia, Michael Bowers, decided to appeal that directly to the Supreme Court, which decided to hear it in November of 1985. And June 30th, 1986, the Supreme Court let loose its decision and said, 
Georgia had every right to write a sodomy law that was against homosexual sodomy because that had been the governing principle for mankind for thousands of years. Well, thank you for that concise summary. It's, I think, crazy for a lot of people to think about how you could be arrested for consensual sex in the privacy of your own home. But that is a thing that did happen in the United States. And it didn't just happen once. You know, this was something that had happened many times before. And so what the court basically said in this case is that there's no constitutional right to engage in same-sex sexual activity. So these sodomy laws that many states had were legally valid. Now, prior to this case, many states, particularly those on the West Coast and some in the Northeast, had repealed their anti-sodomy laws or they had decriminalized same-sex activity. So some of the states were moving in a different direction than the court. What was the public reaction to the case like at the time? I have to imagine it was pretty controversial. It was. And just to give a little bit on the history of these sodomy laws, starting in 1961, Illinois was the first state to repeal its sodomy laws. And it was a little piecemeal. There was there was a model penal code that was offered by a national group of lawyers. And states began to harmonize their laws if they wanted to with that code. So many of them went down the route of repealing sodomy laws, but many of them did not. I think it was Idaho where they repealed it, and then they realized what they had done, and then they reinstituted the law the next year. There were many Southern states that actually toughened their sodomy laws, and Georgia was one of them. In 1968, Georgia added women to its sodomy law while they they moved the sentencing guidelines from a maximum of 30 years down to 20 years, but now it included women as well. And it always included unmarried people. So essentially, Georgia did not want you to have sex unless you were a man and wife, unless you were having a conventional penile vaginal sex. It seems silly now to think about the state governing the kind of sex that you have, because we've kind of grown up now in a generation where behind closed doors means just what the song says, you know, behind closed doors. After the decision was announced, it was this massive thunderclap. It was the realization that the government was moving too slowly in the middle of the HIV epidemic to control it because it mostly affected queer people. And now it was painfully clear that the government had a view of queer people as second-class citizens. So the activist movement that had sort of stabilized around gradual progress, changing sodomy laws, you know, this is post-Anita Bryant where a lot of gay rights ordinances had been dismantled. People were taking it kind of slow and working on appeals to cultural aspects and trying to change the tone of the conversation. Well, now they had a legal moment and a reason to get together. And that's what they did. They organized the March on Washington in 1987, where a half million people came to Washington to protest. And it was a big four or five day event with lobbyists, a march. It was the first unveiling of the AIDS quilt. Leonard Matlovich and other military queer people went to Congressional Cemetery to inter some of Harvey Milk's ashes. And then on the first day of hearings that week, October the 13th, some 600 people were arrested in a protest on the foot of the Supreme Court steps. The police had drawn a line, don't cross this line. People began to cross in waves and they had formed these little affinity groups of 10 or 20 people and Michael's group was one of them. They called themselves Michael Hardwick and the Sodomites. And he was one of about 600 people arrested that day. Everyone I've spoken with who was involved in that era of activism and in that era of the law said that it, it just had this huge effect on recruiting gay and lesbian people to go to law school, for one. 
but to form these nationwide groups and to codify things to be observed. You know, a year later, the first World AIDS Day, December 1st, 1988, National Coming Out Day, October 11th, 1988, which was based on the day of the protest march in D.C., the year anniversary of that. Just this whole sea change. And after that happened, you know, Michael Hardwick had given so much already. He began to retreat from his life as an activist because he had also found out that he was HIV positive. And his life was pretty short beyond that. But he was interviewed several times and he had already offered his name and his case as a focusing point for the queer rights movement. So he had done his part and he had this really interesting career as an artist after that. And he died in 1991 of complications from AIDS. So it sounds like this case had a really big political impact. It really galvanized the queer community, and it set the stage for a string of subsequent cases that actually expanded gay rights. And if you look at some of the more recent cases where you've had that expansion of rights, you can trace a line directly back to that Bowers versus Hardwick case. So while it was definitely a setback at the time, the decision and the way the community responded to it helped set the path for the subsequent expansion of rights. So what were the implications of the Bowers case for other cases in the decades that followed? It's fascinating because you can always trace back a little bit further and find these precedents. So in 1972, same-sex marriage was already in the conversation. There was a couple in Minnesota that had tried to get a hearing up to the Supreme Court because they wanted to get married and didn't understand why they wouldn't be able to because it's a government function. They were denied. And you can see bits and pieces of the holistic movement coming together throughout the 70s. Of course, Anita Bryant was a huge precipitating factor, too. She was essentially the Bowers versus Hardwick of the 70s when so many people realized that she had the power to call voters together and get them to vote against gay rights ordinances. Well, that created the movement for people to organize against her Save Our Children movement. So after, you know, the power of Bowers versus Hardwick versus what would come later, well, number one, the case that directly overturned it, Lawrence v. Texas in 2003, it was another 17 years down the road. You know, it took us a while to get to the point where another perfect legal case would be presented. But you can see throughout the late 90s, the beginnings of the same-sex marriage movement in, you know, at a state-by-state basis. And part of that had come because the organization of groups like National Gay Task Force and Lambda Legal and the Privacy Project had gone to shift their attention to states to get sodomy laws dismantled. And while they were at it, you know, there was this, you know, it's you have to have sodomy laws dismantled before you can have same-sex marriage. And many people say that explicitly. We've got to start here. This is the blocking and tackling of the equality movement and the rights movement. It's so weird. I'm, I'm going to New York in a couple of weeks to do some archival research. And there's one photo that I'm looking for. Someone at a protest in New York held up a sign that said, Dred Scott, 1856, Michael Hardwick, 1986. There's this explicit linkage with second-class citizen status and these long legal travails that would have to be endured before it actually became true. And in a way, we were kind of fortunate that it started to happen so quickly. But it was the depth of the gay rights movement, as far as many of the organizers were concerned, The woman who was Justice Harry Blackman's clerk during that term says this is pretty much the low point of the gay rights movement, Bowers versus Hardwick. Conversely, at the same time, it was the height of the abortion rights 
Roe versus Wade was in effect. It hadn't been diminished by any state laws. The two were kind of organized around the same legal principle of privacy. And gay rights was losing while abortion rights were codified at the moment. Yeah, it is fascinating to look at how all of these different cases are interconnected. And there is that progression that was really important and necessary in terms of first tackling the sodomy laws and then that leading to marriage equality and then that leading to decisions that protect gay and lesbian individuals from discrimination. So there's so many things that are at play here. They're all connected. And that's why the Bowers versus Hardwick case is so important in all of this. As you were speaking, I couldn't help but think about the Anita Bryant Save Our Children thing and how that is so reflective of kind of what's happening now in the modern day environment where you have a lot of people who are talking about basically various laws and ways of restricting LGBTQ rights and it's all under the guise of Save Our Children. And so in some ways things have changed, but they haven't really changed. And we're going to come back to the modern times issue in in a little bit. So tell us a little bit more about Michael Hardwick. Beyond being at the center of that 1986 Supreme Court case, what's his untold story and what made you want to write a book about it? I guess the way I think about it now in shorthand is that everything that could have happened to a gay man during that time through the sexual revolution, through the 70s, through Anita Bryant, through the AIDS epidemic, through his case, it all happened to him. And he's a great way to look at our history and see how some people would say, well, he lost. His case was a loss. Other people say it was, but we absolutely needed this organizing moment. There's a Yale law professor and author, William Eskridge, who I spoke with, and he said, as he said in his book, Dishonorable Passions, So the book is all about the history of sodomy, and he explains that while this was devastating for the gay rights movement as a political principle, it was absolutely perfectly placed as an activist spur. So, so many organizations had already started and been created to nurse HIV people. And frankly, you know, the community had to do it because the government was not stepping in quickly to do it. As an analog, they started to organize around the political ideas that would also promote this new version of homosexuality, of lesbianism, of transgender rights to a broader audience. And really it was, the country had to come to grips with the queer world. And the 1980s was where it really started to do that, in part because of the HIV epidemic, but in big part because of Hardwick too. Yeah, such an important part of queer history. He does have this moment in his life where he's from South Florida, He is living in the gay world. There's this fabulous resort in Fort Lauderdale, uh, the Marlin Beach Hotel. And he's hanging out there with his friends, with his boyfriend. And it's one of the places where they organized to protest Anita Bryant in 1977. So he's intersecting with this whole story along the way. And I think it was not long after that, he had a boyfriend who was the Marlboro Man. (laughs) He has these interesting (laughs) connections with heterosexual culture, too, although I'm, you know, Marlboro Man's not straight or gay or any of that to me, but it's just interesting. He is able to, his story is able to intersect a lot of worlds that some other queer stories, you know, they're more just for us. Yeah. And so Michael Hardwick and the Sodomites really did a lot in terms of helping to change the trajectory of gay rights in the United States. Now, when the Supreme Court ruled that sodomy laws were unconstitutional, circa 2003, 2004, 
I think a lot of people thought that that would be the end of it. You know, those laws are gone and they won't be coming back. And I think a lot of people thought the same thing when the Roe v. Wade decision was issued in 1973. But as we all know, that decision was overturned just a half century later. And there are some on the court currently who would like to revisit previous cases dealing with sexual rights and privacy. So where are we right now? And is it within the realm of possibilities that sodomy laws might come back at some point? Sodomy laws are still enacted in, uh, I think it's a dozen states. And mostly they're applied to cases of sexual assault and involving minors. But there are states where the law just kind of lies where it did before Lawrence. So if a state decides to challenge and decides to explicitly say we no longer protect this behavior, we're going to sue, like Texas's Attorney General Paxton, I think, said, um, it's time that we overturn Lawrence explicitly. But then, you know, Clarence Thomas said the same thing in his concurrence in Dobbs. So when you have a sitting Supreme Court justice who is part of the bank of the majority of the Supreme Court now saying that we should revisit the right to contraception, the right to private sexual behavior, and the rights to same-sex marriage, we should all be really on high alert. We talked about this before that, you know, President Obama was very pointed last October and he said, we have to be aware that progress isn't always in the direction you want it to be. We can always move backwards. And right now, the way things are composed and the way it's so difficult to change the Supreme Court and the balance of our legislatures, we could very easily move backwards. And I feel like we're doing that. I feel like the, the current Supreme Court is just giving permission to red states to go ahead and write their own laws. And they'll just excuse it and say, well, we can, you know, states' rights covers so much of that what I think is just garbage law. We have rights as federal citizens, but the current Supreme Court just has decided that some things don't apply to everybody. I worry about it because when I moved to Atlanta in 1997, technically every time I had sex, it was illegal. I mentioned that to a younger queer person that I knew and they were just baffled. They were like, what are you talking about? Well, this is where we are. Yeah, and it is incredible when you think about just how recent some of these advances were, you know, that sodomy laws were not declared to be unconstitutional until less than two decades ago. Nationwide marriage equality was only within the last decade. And so you do have a lot of younger people who kind of take these things for granted because they didn't grow up, you know, having to go through that struggle piece by piece because it was such a long path to changing the law in these areas. But, you know, as you mentioned, progress doesn't always move in the same direction. And so this has me thinking about other laws that might come back too. You know, there's been some talk in the media lately about revival of the Comstock Act of 1873, which created a federal ban on mailing anything related to contraception or abortion. It also banned mailing anything obscene or immoral. And it's one of those, what people often call zombie laws, where it's still on the books but it hasn't been enforced for decades. But some are seeking to revive it as a new strategy to make abortion impossible. Because if you can't mail anything related to abortion, that would make it very difficult, if not impossible, to run an abortion clinic. So, you know, the future of sexual and reproductive rights, I think, looks fairly uncertain at this time. Not just abortion rights, but I think the Mifepristone issue is huge. Uh, if you decide that we are going to roll our, our laws back to the Reconstruction era in terms of what can be sent, what can be mailed, what can be received, 
you know, that overturns even more precedents that the court has said. You know, Stanley versus Georgia has this big place in the history of privacy and sexuality. And I didn't realize that until I started researching more. But in 1969, the court said that if you were viewing pornography in your home, that is your business. Stanley v. Georgia, I can watch whatever I want to as long as it's legally obtained. Before that, a few rulings had established the right to send explicit pornography that was explicitly queer, too. So, you know, the right to actually disseminate information about who we are. And that all goes back to, I guess it's 1928, Olmstead, that basically the right to be let alone, you know, within community standards and more aggressively protecting privacy standards. You know, you should be able to do what you want to do in your home. And if we're really serious about rolling all these back, what is the effective countermeasure? I really think that, you know, people who are at the leading edge of legal and political worlds need to find a way to talk about that very plainly so that people can understand this is what we have to do to preserve these, this 130, 140 years of progress. Yeah. And these things are changing slowly but surely in a lot of different ways. And, and oftentimes it's happening at the state level. So I'm also thinking about a new law that went into effect this year in Louisiana that requires age verification if you visit an adult website. So I think the website has to have 30% or more content that is considered pornographic. And if so, then there has to be this third-party age verification where like literally you have to upload your driver's license and so you know there's this record somewhere connecting you to pornography and we're in this really interesting time when it comes to how the country is thinking about and talking about sex and for decades it had become more sexually liberal in a lot of ways but it's increasingly sexually conservative in a lot of ways as well yeah, I think we had the era in the late 70s where fundamentally the discussion about what you could do and what those things were began to be foregrounded. And then, of course, HIV AIDS made very explicit sex talk on television at the dinner hour appropriate and a good idea. And it made it widely accepted. But there's always a reaction to that kind of overt sexuality. And, you know, unfortunately, at the same time, we were undergoing this political alignment that took some states that would have reliably voted one way and shifted them in another direction. And now there's a political deck of cards that's stacked in a way that we can't unstack at the same time where the internet and mobile devices just give us unbridled access to all that kind of content. And I go through this mental exercise. I think of my last book that I wrote, which was about drag and has some not explicit sex, but definitely it's talked about. If someone wanted to ban the book, well, what's to ban them from getting the Kindle version? Nothing. I mean, the, the technological barriers, Ron DeSantis can't do anything about that. The governor of Tennessee can't do anything about that. But they can do these political positioning things like making drag stars get a license to perform, which I think they're trying to do in Tennessee, which is just ridiculous because you can see any of that stuff on television, RuPaul's Drag Race. They're just doing it to call a group of voters together and get them to vote for them the next time around and reinforce their position of power. Yeah. I guess the question ultimately is how far things will go in the other direction. And I think that's something we just won't know. We'll have to wait and see how it all unfolds. But I think it all speaks to the importance of we do need to be paying attention to all of these things because they're not happening in isolation. You know, you have laws regarding sex education that are being tightened. We have laws regarding 
whether you can perform in drag, being imposed, reversals of reproductive rights, of broader LGBTQ rights. And so, you know, there are lots of things to be concerned about here. And so I'm concerned. I'm very concerned because the other side seems to have grabbed the narrative that they're protecting children. We know that trans children have better outcomes psychologically when they're cared for. We know that teen pregnancy rates are lower when the information is distributed, when contraceptives are available. We know that monitoring and providing for sexual health provides better outcomes for everybody. So why is the other side trying to harm children? That is a different way to think about it. And you know, there are lots of different angles and lenses through which you could view this. It's just we're at an unfortunate time in our politics where no one can seem to talk to anyone else anymore without it devolving into personal attacks and, and other things. And so that's, I think, one of the things that is complicating us in terms of making progress is that we're just yelling at each other and totally yelling past one another. And I don't purport to know the solution or answer to any of that other than that it is a concerning path that we seem to be on right now. I don't have the answers either, but I would say the market difference from the Hardwick era is that people are more out and more open. And another thing that the Hardwick case did is it really compelled a lot of people to come out and be comfortable with their sexuality in a public way. And so long as we have that, we have community, and then we have a foundation for people to organize to make something happen. And that wasn't really that prevalent in the 70s. It was more prevalent in the 80s. And then, you know, this explosion of, of coming out and queerness and acceptance that we feel like we're, we're in now. That's a powerful thing. It is. And I think this is all just an important reminder that, you know, I think a lot of people thought that the gay rights movements stopped once marriage equality happened and it didn't stop. It's still ongoing and it's not something where you can give up. You know, that now is the time to reinvest because things are changing and not necessarily in a good way. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Marty. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and also get a copy of your book? Yes. My website is martinpaget.com. My book, A Night at the Sweet Gumhead, is available all the online booksellers. And uh, if you're in Atlanta, Poseman Books and Acapella Books in particular have been great helps, as has Karis Books, a queer-owned bookstore for decades. And my next book, hopefully comes out at the end of next year. It's called The Many Passions of Michael Hardwick. And we're very much looking forward to that. So thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>